Okay, all right. So we've been making our way through here. What we've seen is this to this point. Um, Jesus has already stood uh, trial before the Jewish religious leaders, before Pontius Pilate as well, the Roman ruler. His trial had unfolded before Jews and before Gentiles. Before the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus had had a religious trial. And when he was taken before uh, the Gentiles, uh, Pilate and the Romans, it was a political trial. And in both accounts, Jesus is found innocent. Pilate had declared three times that he had found nothing in Christ Jesus that made him worthy or deserving of death. Nevertheless, uh, the people of Israel negotiated a trade for a convicted insurrectionist and murderer by the name of Barabbas in exchange for Jesus, and Pilate condemned Jesus uh, to die by crucifixion. So it was a trade. A deal was made, a transaction. Literally, I mean, this is the gospel. An innocent life was swapped for that of a guilty one. The blameless was exchanged for a lawbreaker, and the great drama that was unfolding in the heavenlies was taking place and being played out on earth. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's what Peter says. The righteous for the unrighteous, that the righteous Jesus might bring you and I to God. He would be put to death in the body, but made alive in the flesh, made alive by the spirit so that all who received him to those who believed in his name would be born or would, be, would have the right to become children of God. John tells us, children who were born of God, not of blood, children born not of flesh, nor of the will of a man, but born of God, born of the Spirit. And so Jesus was traded. He was flogged, and then he was led away to be crucified, and those condemned to die by crucifixion would be compelled in that culture to carry their own cross, probably, probably just the cross beam, but they would be compelled to carry it on their way to their death. And so let's pick this up. Verse 26 of Luke's gospel it says this, and they led him away. They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now here's this man, Simon. We're introduced to him. He's from Cyrene, which is modern day Libya. So that's incredible. He's, he's traveled from North Africa a long ways, probably more than 1,200 kilometers. And if I was to guess, I mean, the text doesn't tell us. Simon is there for the celebration of the Jewish Passover. And I don't think this was something that he did on an annual basis to make a 1,200 kilometer journey in those days. So it was probably a rare thing for him. He'd probably save for years to make this happen. Mark's gospel tells us that he was that Simon was the father of, of two boys by the name of Alexander and Rufus. And these two young men became followers of Christ. They're mentioned in other places in the New Testament. Even their mother is made reference to in Romans chapter 16. And so they became followers of Christ. Even Simon did. And you have to wonder if Simon's wife and sons were present in this moment. I mean, imagine Jesus being paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, um, stumbling under the weight of the cross, Simon being plucked out of the crowd and possibly his wife and his sons present with him on the road. I wonder, did they have a Passover lamb with them? Were they on the way to the temple to offer the sacrifice 
when Simon was pulled out of the crowd by a Roman soldier and compelled to carry the cross. And Roman soldiers had this authority. According to the law of the empire, they could compel anyone at any time to carry goods, to carry their backpack, to carry something like their weapons or a cross, and they could be compelled, anyone in the empire, to carry it for a distance of one mile. Remember, that's why Jesus gave this teaching that if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer your other as well, and if they compel you to carry something one mile, go two. And so physically, Jesus was unable to carry the cross, and after undergoing a number of beatings, being up all night and, and being flogged, it's hard for us to imagine what that was like. Jewish law for flogging was that there was a maximum of 40 lashes. And so to ensure that they didn't go too far in a flogging, they would practice 40 minus 1, 39 lashes. But this was not a Jewish flogging that Jesus endured. That's what we need to remember. And the Romans had no such restrictions. Their flogging was not restricted to 39 lashes. They would flog a victim until the victim would just begin to spout and confess every wrongdoing that they had ever done just in an effort to get the soldiers to stop. And what's amazing about Jesus, what the scripture prophesies and what the gospel recounts to us is that Jesus had no sins to confess. So as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not utter a word while they flogged him. And we can only imagine what Jesus endured. But the result was this. He was unable to bear the weight of the cross all the way, from Golgotha, all the way to Golgotha. And Simon was compelled to carry it for him. And the encounter changed the life of this man forever. Now verse 27 says this. And there followed him a great multitude of the people... And of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry. And we've seen this throughout Luke's gospel, that Luke's gospel um, and its recounting pays special attention to the role of women in the story of Jesus. And throughout all the gospel accounts, actually, there's never, there's never a situation in the gospels between Jesus and a, and a woman where Jesus is in conflict with a woman, where she rebels against him, which is interesting. It's always the men. It's always the men rebelling against Christ and going the other direction. And here, as Jesus is on the way to Golgotha, he's followed by a multitude of people. And Luke makes particular mention of the women because, who were mourning because Jesus turned and he spoke specifically to them. He had the strength still to do so. And he said this to the ladies. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, because if men will do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? <laughs> Interesting statement. Kind of a strange reference, really, you know. Green wood and dry wood, but Jesus was a carpenter, you know. So 
He knew the difference. Greenwood's hard to cut. It's harder to burn. Those of you who burn firewood, how many of you burn firewood? You know, your firewood has to be seasoned so that it's efficient and it's burning so that it'll just burn and you don't have to struggle to get that fire going. Being a carpenter, Jesus knew the importance of seasoning wood. Carpenters don't build with green wood. It's hard to work with. It warps as it and twists as it dries. And the nation of Israel, Jesus says, I, I guess here was still like unseasoned green wood. This should have been a time of fruitfulness. This should have been a time of the nation experiencing the blessing of God. But instead, they were rejecting the Son of God, Jesus. And the time would come when the nation would be seasoned and it would be dry and it would be ready for the fire of judgment. And the gospel accounts tell us that, that Jesus longed to gather the children of Israel unto himself, the men and women of Israel, but they would have no part of it. They condemned him. And in doing so, they condemned themselves. And Jesus specifically spoke to the women because when, when the nation was dry and seasoned and would face judgment, it was the women and the children in particular in those instances that were most vulnerable. Women and children who would face the greatest peril and danger when, when Jerusalem was besieged by Rome. Jesus was speaking of Jerusalem. I, I was thinking about this just even in our own nation. Some of the discussions we've been having in the current environment of a God-rejecting people. Who pays the biggest price? Women and children. And it's interesting, these same words of Jesus are used in the book of Revelation regarding another time. It's called the, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb, a day that is yet to come, to come on those who do not know God. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 6. It says this, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the scripture teaches us that if men and women will refuse the offer of salvation that is in Christ Jesus, then they must face the wrath of the Lamb. So the Lord warned these people about the judgment that was to come on Jerusalem. And so the word of God warns us, heeds us of the future wrath of the Lamb. And that's why the message of the cross is so important to us. The message of salvation. Because the cross has to be turned around and you know our own life has to face the message of Jesus. Our own heart has to be asked, am, am, am I ready for the future? Am I ready to serve Christ, or am I being seasoned like a dry piece of wood? And it's important that we ask ourselves this because it's easy to suppose that Jesus holds out nothing but mercy and love 
and forgiveness. And he does hold out those things. Amen? He offers those things to all people everywhere. He offers them to us. The Lord, the scripture says, is rich in mercy. He delights in mercy, but with him there is justice as well as mercy. There is judgment being stored up for the unbelieving and the unrepentant. And that's what this warning is. And then next in Luke's gospel account, we're introduced to two more characters. Let's check it out. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. This is where we get that famous picture in our mind of the three crosses on the hill of Golgotha. They were led to this place called Golgotha. That's an Aramaic name. It's also called Calvary from the Latin, which means the place of the skull. Our friend uh, Beth, Beth was working there. Working there at that place that we call the garden tomb. Actually, it's right beside, I, I think anyways, it's a beautiful garden right next door to the rock that has a resemblance of a skull. It's called, uh, it's called Gordon's Calvary, actually, if you've ever visited there, or if you haven't, you got to join us sometime on a trip to Israel. It was identified by a British general um, a little more than 100 years ago as a spot that, a rock that looks like a skull. And it's not the traditional church site, you know, going back into orthodoxy and and history, the Orthodox Church has this spot where they point to and they say Jesus died here and it's all enshrined and it's kind of a, a gross church to me. It's not a nice place to go to go visit. But General Gordon was pretty convinced that he found a more legitimate spot and it's a beautiful spot to visit where Beth was working. And at that place called the Skull, Jesus was led there and he was crucified between these two thieves and the original language expresses the idea that these men were evildoers, these two men. They, they weren't just thieves. The language is expressing this idea. These were men that were employed by evil. They were employed by evil. One commentator said they may have been guilty of armed robbery involving murder. So these, these are not petty thieves. These were evildoers, and they got the justice that was coming to them for their evil crucifixion. And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 that, that, that was prophesied. Isaiah prophesied that his grave would be made with the wicked. And Jesus was crucified between these two thieves. In verse 34, as the crowd was there and Jesus was hanging there on the cross with the thieves, he looked out. And cried out to the Father, and verse 34 says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Again, it's like, it's like hard to imagine. I have to say, I don't like talking about the cross in certain ways. I don't want to imagine what Jesus had to endure for my sin and yours. But here he is at this point, he's suspended on that cross, hung there by three nails. The agony of all that he endured to this point, it's crazy that it did not cause him to think about himself. At the forefront of Jesus' heart and mind were others, 
Were you and I, even as he hung on the cross, Jesus' thoughts were not for himself, but for others. And he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. To me, it's so awesome to just consider that, to say, man, Lord, thank you for your graciousness, for your compassion. Thank you, Lord, that none are too wicked for you, that no one is too far gone. Even those that were crucified with him were not so far gone that Jesus wasn't interested in their souls and them knowing the reality of forgiveness. Even hanging on the cross, the heart of Jesus beat with compassion for the lost. He he said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, even as they scoffed at him, even as they mocked him, even as they were casting lots, dividing up his clothes among them, fulfilling Psalm 22 and that which was prophesied. And verse 35 says this, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of of the Jews. We know from the other gospels that this inscription that was nailed to the cross above the head of Jesus was written in Latin. It was written in Greek and in Hebrew. Latin, the language of government, the language of the authority of that day. Greek, the language of culture and intellect. Hebrew, the language of religion. In each language, Pilate had it recorded that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And the crowd at the cross, they scoffed. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. They didn't understand this, that if he saved himself, he couldn't save others. He was there because he desired to save others. They didn't understand that it wasn't the nails that were holding Jesus to the cross. Aren't you thankful for that? It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. They didn't know that with a word, with just a word, he could summon legions of angels. They didn't know that he hung on the cross as a ransom for their sin. They didn't know that by mocking him and offering him sour wine, they were fulfilling prophecies of the Old Testament. And they laughed at his weakness because they thought he was helpless. Christ Jesus was not helpless. As awful as the pain and suffering of the cross was, Christ Jesus was in total control and in full submission to the Father's will. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Verse 39, the great account of the criminals, it says this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. It's amazing the one criminal mocked him along with the crowd, but the other didn't. That other criminal that was hanging there beside Jesus was convicted of his sin. He was convicted of his own sin. He was convicted about the righteousness of Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong, he professed. He was convicted about the reality of a coming judgment. He knew that he was being judged for his own evil. He knew that the wages of sin was death. He knew that he deserved it and convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring this realization to a human's conscience. This man came to a confession about Jesus, both of these criminals hung there with this sign. They could both read the sign posted above his head that declared he was the king of the Jews. They all saw it, even the crowd saw it, and one man understood, and he said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed this, and I'm thankful for this, that we know this as we come to the account of the cross. He knew this was not the end of Jesus. He, he was the only person in the whole crowd, I would say, that saw through the cross and saw Jesus crowned as king and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus gave what I just want to call the most lovely reply. What better could he say? What, what could be more wonderful than to say, today I say to you, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And you know, the word paradise that Jesus uses here, it's not a cinnamon for, for heaven. It's not, hey, you're going to be with me in heaven. Doesn't mean today you'll be with me in the kingdom. It's a word that means this. Today, you're coming to the king's garden, to the palace garden. I, it's, it's literally this. Today, you will be with me in the garden. What a lovely picture. God and man in a garden. God and man, it seems to have a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Kind of reminds me of something. Amazing that two men could be hung there beside Jesus and be in the exact same circumstance and one can turn to the Lord and one can go on in his rebellion against the Lord. One come in faith and one reject the person of Jesus. And as he hung there, Luke tells us that the sun went out. In the middle of the day, and it wasn't an eclipse because this lasted for three hours. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus was uh, crucified at 9 a.m. He was there for six hours. He died at 3 p.m., and at this time, the, the sun went out. And crucifixion, let me come back to the sun here in a minute, but crucifixion was designed to make the process of death uh, very slow. It was like very common, more common than not, that the person who was being crucified that would last three days on the cross. It was a slow, painful process. In fact, there were those who lasted seven days at times. But Jesus lasted just six hours. And his life was not taken from him. It's important that we don't get this wrong. Jesus said that he had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. No one took his life. He laid it down. 
He breathed his last and he committed his spirit to the Lord. We're going to read that in a minute here. But Luke tells us that the sky went black and the curtain of the temple tore from top to bottom. You know, when you, when you think about the curtain of the temple, it's not like a cheap shower curtain. You got those in your house? You know, I hate those dollar store curtains. They're really great for a while and then, you know, they just start to shred and fall apart. This was no cheap shower curtain. This was the curtain that separated the holy place from the, holy, the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt amongst the children of Israel in the temple. The place that only the high priest entered and that once a year by the blood of the sacrifice. And this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was 60 feet tall. Get that in your head. 60 feet tall and it was 30 feet wide and it was four inches thick. It weighed four tons. It took 300 men to pick it up and put it in place. Okay, this is not, not a, you know, a cheap shower curtain. And the fact that it tore from the top to the bottom was very significant. We know this. If it was torn by man, it would have been from the bottom to the top. The picture is this. This was a curtain that was torn, a separation that was broken, and the work was done from heaven towards man. And the significance, well, only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and that once a year, but now the Holy of Holies would be open and all could peer in there and see that God was not there. God was now with man, and God would no longer dwell in a temple made by human hands, but people themselves would become the temple of God and God would make his dwelling with those he made in his image, those who put their faith and trust in Christ. They would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But for now, Luke tells us, the sun went out. Literally, and as I read that, I think God was gone. Jesus died on that cross. It went dark. There has never been a darker time on the face of the earth than those three hours. God's light. Jesus is the light of the world. Where God is not, there is darkness. And those who will not allow the light of the world to rule over them walk in darkness. That's what the scripture tells us. Then Luke records this in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw, that, saw what had ha taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. When the time came, Jesus, I, I like the old, the old English, gave up the ghost. He breathed his last. He surrendered his spirit to the Lord. And all along, there's this centurion there. He was a commanding officer. I think this, when we read about him, this was the man that was in charge of all that was going down. When you think about it, he had probably overseen the flogging. He had probably led the pro procession towards Golgotha. I wonder, was this the man that grabbed Simon out of the crowd to carry the cross? He had stood over Jesus while he was being pinned to the cross, nailed to the cross. Maybe he had had the hammer in his own hands, this centurion. Maybe he had participated. 
He had kept the crowd at bay and under control. He had listened to the mocking. He had heard those who spoke from the cross to the right and left of Jesus. He saw the interaction between Jesus and these men who were crucified with him. He heard the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. He heard the prayer that Jesus gave, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. This centurion had a front row, front row seat, and he felt and experienced the blackness that was so thick when the sun went out. And when the centurion saw what happened, he didn't just make a simple statement here that Jesus was innocent. No, step by step, he realized that Jesus was a good man. He realized that Jesus was innocent. He realized that there was blood on the hands of those who had condemned him. And he realized that Jesus was more than a good man. And Luke tells us that this centurion was praising God. Did you see that? It's what it says. He praised God. He praised God saying, surely this man was innocent. The other gospels tell us that this centurion also confessed that Jesus was the son of God. Uh, It's so awesome that a Roman centurion was the first Gentile to feel the reality of the cross and to confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Then it says in verse 48, And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I always think that's such an incredible picture. Men beating their breasts in victory, feeling that they've been victorious over the Son of God. Sinful men beating their breasts. What they didn't know is this. Jesus just beat sin. (laughs) Jesus beat sin and he was going to beat death. Now verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate And asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was, I don't know, I'd always say this, afraid to come out, so to speak, for Jesus. He had not consented to the death of Jesus. He he had spoken, uh, but he had not spoken up for Jesus. Not consented, but not spoken up. And on some level, I have to imagine this was a, a man with regrets on this day, regrets that he had not come out into the open and into the light and just declared his allegiance to Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were both members of the Jewish council. I don't don't think they were present on the night that Jesus was condemned because the, the, the Bible tells us that all those present convicted him, condemned him to die. Somehow they skipped out and they decided this, that they would take care of Jesus and they would take care of his burial once he was dead. Joseph owned this tomb. 
near the side of the crucifixion. And so once Jesus had dismissed his spirit, Joseph went to Pilate. He asked for permission to take the, the body down and to bury Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And so I imagine with the help of the centurion, Joseph and Nicodemus got the body of Jesus down off the cross. They, they cleaned his body. They, they quickly wrapped it in some new linen and spices, which they thought would be a good temporary solution until he could be given a proper burial. And then they took him and they laid him in the tomb. And all of this was done very quickly before the Sabbath began. What's interesting is this is church history says that Joseph of Arimathea was eventually commissioned by Philip to go to the far reaches of the Roman Empire to preach the gospel. And church history says that Joseph of Arimathea went to England, actually. Um, and, you know, a little extra biblical stuff, I think, or extra church history. He brought the Holy Grail with him, which I kind of say, no, nah, I don't think so. But whether he actually uh, did so or not, I mean, I, it's just interesting. I, I would uh, question the legend, of course, about the Holy Grail, but I do believe he preached Christ in England. This man went on to serve Jesus. Then there's the women who followed Jesus all along. They saw the tomb. Luke is clear to tell us. This is going to matter for where we go next week. They saw the spot where his body was laid. They knew it was the Sabbath and it was approaching, so they went uh, to where they were staying. They prepared ointments and spices, and they planned to return after the Sabbath and to give Jesus a proper burial. So they rested, Luke tells us, according to the commandment, because it was the Sabbath. And so we come to the end of the chapter. It's Friday. We're left hanging. Sunday's coming. Aren't you glad you know that Sunday's coming when we read this account? And as I think about this, you know, I want to ask this question as we wrap up. What happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? What was this action? What was the work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross? What was happening what was going on? What is it that matters theologically, spiritually for you and I? And the Bible uses a word to describe what happened on the cross. It uses this word, propitiation, which means this, atonement. There was a, a shedding of blood, a covering for sin. The cross was the point in history where the Son of God satisfied the wrath of God. At the cross, Jesus gave his sinless, spotless life in exchange for sinful men. He suffered. He gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit so that we might be forgiven of our sin. He gave up his life so that he could impart to us life. And on the cross, Jesus gave his life as an atonement for the sin of mankind. That's what the apostle said. This is what Paul said. He said this, we preach Christ crucified. Church, that's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. When we say we preach Christ crucified, we are declaring truth about the nature of human beings and we are declaring truth about the nature and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say we preach Christ, we're declaring this. Men and women by nature are born in sin. 
And to be born into sin is to be born into slavery. It's to be born captive to a power that our own strength is absolutely, uh, that in our own strength is absolutely inescapable. And that power enslaves us and leads to death. And what the cross teaches us is this, that there is a power greater than sin and greater than death. And that power is Christ Jesus. He is God in the flesh. And when Jesus was born and came into this world, he was not born into slavery of sin. Jesus was sinless. He was the spotless lamb of God. He had no human father. He was conceived of by the spirit. And he was tempted by sin. He was tempted by the devil. He knew weakness. He knew the weakness of human flesh and frailty, and yet he was without sin. And on the cross, the sinless life of Jesus was offered up in exchange to God for you and I. Christ Jesus purchased our freedom. Christ Jesus purchased our redemption. Jesus came to set captives free. Amen. And he came not just to set us free from sin's power, but he came to set us free from sin's presence. He came to set us free from sin's penalty. And to do so, he gave his life on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. No one else could do what Jesus did. No one else could do what Jesus did. And Jesus claimed I am the exclusive point of access to the Father. He said this, no one comes except through me. And Men and women everywhere must be convicted of sin. We have to be aware of sin like the thief who hung on the cross and acknowledged it. We have to be convicted about righteousness, that there's no one righteous No one, the only righteous one is the Lord Jesus Christ and he lived the life that you and I could not because he was sinless. We must be convicted of sin. We must be convicted of righteousness and we have to be convicted that there is a future judgment. The father has committed all judgment into the hands of his son. See, the father executed judgment on his son on the cross and then he committed judgment into his son's hands. Uh, The wrath of the lamb will be leveled against all who will reject the cross of Christ, all who will reject the Lord Jesus. And the father commands this, that all people everywhere repent and be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about that with all the wisdom of men, all the religious efforts of human beings, all the technological advancements of our age, everything that men and women have developed with their creativity and everything we can make and everything we can build and everything we can invent and engineer, we cannot make a way to know God. And it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach, Christ crucified, he would save those who believe in Jesus. Paul said this, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to those who demand signs and folly to those who trust in the wisdom of man. But to us who are called of God, 
Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God. Men and women are sinners. And Jesus lived the perfect life in righteousness. There is a judgment coming. And the gospel asks us this question. Have you trusted in Christ Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Would you stand with me? You invite the worship team to come. Lord Jesus, we just lift our hearts and minds to you this morning. Jesus acknowledging that in and of ourselves, there is no one righteous here, Lord. Not one. We're sinners. We're sinners. But you, Jesus, are the righteousness of God. And you came to this world. You offered yourself in our place. An exchange happened on that cross. You died in our place. Uh, the righteous for the unrighteous. And Lord, for those who trust in you, you clothe them in your righteousness. And Lord, this morning as your church, we come before you, not in our own efforts, not in our own works, not in our own wisdom, not in anything we can create or do. Lord, we come and we stand before you this morning fully in the, the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, we trust the work of the cross. Jesus, we believe in propitiation. We believe you are the atonement for the sins of mankind. Jesus, we believe that no one comes to the Father except through you. Lord, we recognize there's a judgment coming. And so, God, we pray. We pray for ourselves, Lord. We pray for our community, for our nation, that there would be conviction of sin, of righteousness, of coming judgment, and that we would trust in you, Jesus, you, Jesus, who desires that all men would be saved. Lord, this morning we worship you. We praise you. We give you our thanks. We give you our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.